0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash loss. That's plushcare.com slash loss.
1: Welcome to Poodle Politics, the political podcast of the San Antonio Express News. My name is Gilbert Garcia, Metro columnist, and I'm joined by
2: Business Editor and Columnist Greg
0: Jefferson. Investigative Reporter Brian Chazanoff.
1: Our guest today, um, Mike Collier, is uh, an accountant and auditor who ran, uh, who's making a second bid for uh, Texas Lieutenant Governor. He ran in 2018 and got within five percentage points of defeating uh, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, which is one of the closest uh, statewide uh, elections that we've had in Texas over the last uh, 25 years or so. Um, at, the, at this point, it looks like Mike is it will is the likely Democratic nominee. Uh, we obviously we don't we don't know exactly what the the primary races are going to look like, but I think it's safe to say he's the, he's the likely Democratic nominee. And so we're looking at a, at a, the strong possibility that we'll have uh, in 2022 a rematch of of uh, the 2018 lieutenant governor's race. And so there's a lot to talk about, uh, Mike. We're really glad to have you here. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. I'm very happy to be here. I, I wanted to start by talking about something that, uh, that made national news last week. Um, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick was on Laura Ingram's show <clears throat> on Fox News, and uh, she uh, mentioned that Texas has a, a very high uh, rate of hospitalizations and 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 death uh related to covid-19 right now as as the whole country seeing this uh, delta variant surge texas is one of the states that's being hit hardest and he he uh pushed back against the idea that uh republicans are in any way responsible um for for this or had it played any role in this spike. And so the, the quote that he made, which, which got so much attention was, uh, the biggest group in most states are African-Americans who are not vaccinated. Uh, last time I checked, um, over 90% of them vote for Democrats in their major cities and counties. Um, I mean, many people pointed out uh, after he said that, that uh, roughly 75% of the eligible People who are eligible in Texas to be vaccinated and are not vaccinated are um, are in fact, uh, you know, white people. But um, I wanted to get your take on on what he said and what what he was uh, what you think he was trying to convey uh, uh, during that interview.
2: Right. Well, I would say, I mean, I I was very surprised and disappointed, uh, very dissatisfied with that answer. You know, when I think about what. I mean, COVID is heartbreaking. So many families have been shattered by this. What we're looking for out of our leaders is really just good information, some guidance. Um, That's what Dan Patrick doesn't do. uh, To say that, to blame one ethnic group uh, for the problems, uh, rather than take responsibility for the fact that he really hadn't done anything, hadn't provided any leadership from the very beginning, was really just... um, just a terrible, terrible thing to do, and um, I got so many phone calls from friends, Democrats and Republicans alike, you know, telling me this is really not what we want from our leaders. First of all, it's it's not not true that um, it's Black uh, Texans that are d- uh, creating the difficulties for us. It's uh, the the problem is throughout the state. Um, it's not true that uh, Republicans have tried to solve this problem. Dan Patrick hasn't done a thing, to my knowledge. All he did at the beginning of the crisis was say some vague comment about grandparents dying um, and then didn't do anything at all. Well, a lot of grandparents did die. A lot of grandchildren did die. I mean, it's just awful. So I think this is a case of Dan Patrick, you know, trying to use Fox news to uh, exalt himself. He's trying to use Fox news to distract from the fact that Republicans have not, he has not handled this uh, crisis well at all. And it's just not what we're looking for from our leaders. You know, we, we had, uh, a,
1: a, a statewide mask mandate uh, for about eight months, from uh, last July up to March of this year, and uh, uh, since then, uh, Governor Greg Abbott, he's not only refused to reimpose a mask mandate, even as we're seeing numbers, you know, hospitalization and death numbers mm-hmm. um, h- higher than we than we'd had in months and months, uh, but he's not only refusing to do that, but also you know, banning local governments and local school districts from from imposing any mandates of their own. Uh, how do you think the state should be handling this issue of mask mandates?
2: I have always believed in local control. I think that makes the most sense because the elected officials that, you know, that we know and trust and they know us and they know what's on our minds uh, should be making these decisions. What's right for one county, a small rural county in West Texas. Is not going to be right, for example, in a place like Bear County. And that's why we elect our local officials and we know them and we trust them and they have, they have our ear, uh, we have their ear rather, and that's the way they should be played. Uh, and so needless to say, what, what uh, Governor Abbott is doing is canceling local control. And we're not talking about tree ordinances or plastic bags here. We're talking about lives, particularly children's lives and families and so forth. So, and I can't imagine that when we gave the governor emergency powers, we the people gave the governor emergency powers so that in the case of an emergency, he could implement safety protocols. We did not give him those powers so that he could cancel safety protocols in the event of an emergency. And so the logic is absurd. The policy is bad. Texans are very, very much against it. Uh, I don't know why uh, Greg Abbott as a Republican would abandon what used to be a very republican point of view, which is local control there's a reason why local control is a better answer, and I very much disagree with his policy on this
0: so i mean just to just to clarify why uh his the lieutenant governor's comments about b- black Texans was wrong um i mean the the truth is that uh white Texans are almost three times um, uh, as numerous as the the uh, unvaccinated black Texans. The unvaccinated white Texans are almost three times as, as numerous. So I just, I just wanted to ask you, I mean, when, when Dan Patrick makes these types of disingenuous comments that are apparently designed to appeal to a slice of, of his base, how do you counter that in today's media environment when everyone's siloed into uh, you know, consuming the media of their choice?
2: Well, you know, that's always the, the challenge is to get your point across. And um, the, you know, there are pl- plenty of avenues available to somebody like me, uh, newspapers, for example, uh, what we can do in social media uh, with Twitter and so forth. So we made sure that we used all of the um, tools available to us to make sure that folks know that what he said was wrong. Uh, it's bad for the state. Um, if I were lieutenant governor, I would handle it. Much differently, but I, but I, I hasten to point out that we didn't begin using all the tools available to us just in response to Dan Patrick's dreadful comment. We've been talking about COVID and the importance of leadership and taking and challenging our leaders from the very beginning. And I've always tried to be constructive and say to them, "Look, um, yeah, I mean it's a free country, and people need to make this decision for themselves as to whether or not to get the vaccine. I support that. Um, however, Texans don't have good information." And they aren't being informed, not only as to the efficacy of the vaccine, uh, but also what happens if we don't vaccinate ourselves and if we don't achieve herd immunity. We've been saying for a long time, I've been saying for a long time, that this is a very dangerous virus. If it is allowed to run rampant in the community, then it can morph into more dangerous strains. That's what we saw with Delta. And, you know, what happens to us? And I pray this doesn't. But what happens to us if we have a virulent resistance strain? That's a very real possibility. And as long as we have people, uh, large segments of the population unvaccinated, that is a very, very real risk. And if you could imagine, and I don't want to imagine, we would have to start over. Now, in a, in a world where it, everyone gets to make their own decision, and I support that, what's the role of leaders? Leaders are to provide good information, cut through all the noise and the nonsense, the conspiracy theories and the rest, give folks good science-based information and motivation, and then make sure that the hurdles aren't, you know, the the vaccines have to be available, people need transportation and the rest. Those are the sorts of things that our leaders should have been doing that they have not been doing. Uh, I've been critical of them and trying to get their attention for many, many months now.
1: So... Mike, this
2: this morning, the Food and Drug Administration uh, announced its approval of Pfizer's uh, COVID nineteen vaccine. So it's no longer you know just an emergency use designation; it's it's got regular approval. It seems like that's of, that's what a lot of corporations, local governments, school boards were waiting for uh, before deciding whether to make vaccinations uh, mandatory for their workforces. How do you feel about that? Is that something you would encourage? Oh, I, well, it's a, certainly it's the fact that it's approved now uh, through all of the official channels and all the hoops that you got to go through is really quite a positive thing. It should help with um, our political leaders and their communicating uh, with constituents. Why is it important to get the vaccine? The fact that the vaccine is safe, you know, companies should make their own decisions. There will be companies who say, OK, now that this is fully approved, we expect our employees to get the vaccine. Uh, I think it should be left to the companies uh, again. um it's free country, and I really believe that. And that's a form of local control. Uh, I think this strengthens the hand of those of us who think vaccines are a very good thing because we can communicate with the more strength of the science behind us. I think more people will be motivated to get the vaccine. So I, I view it as very positive development.
1: I mean, I, I think so many of us who have kids in school are, are really concerned about about how the, uh, this Delta variant surge is going to affect schools and and the health of our of our kids, and particularly kids under twelve who are not eligible for the vaccine. When you look at what's happening, and I think that we're seeing, for example, uh, in here in the SAISD, they are requiring. Um, uh, Personnel to get vaccinated, and this is something that's been legally challenged by Ken Paxton on on the grounds that this was merely an emergency use authorization. I think that that uh, that legal fight may change now. But um, what when you look at what schools can do to prevent having to shut down or um, you know get away from from um, in person learning? Um, what are what steps do you think are, are would the best ideas now for schools?
2: Yeah. So great question. I mean, I think we all agree that shutting down is a bad answer. Uh, I think we all agree that children, you know, if it can be done safely and we need to work towards doing it safely, it's much better for everybody to have children in classrooms. Parents who have jobs solves a problem. There's just so many reasons why that's the right thing to do. That's why it's so important that you do it safely. Um, wearing masks is not an impressive thing to do. If a school district, in their judgment, Uh, If the superintendent in his or her judgment recommends to the board, look, we really ought to have masks for our children. It's you're not asking too much. Um, If the board votes and agrees, um, they have our proxy. I mean, that's why we hired them to do that job. And if that keeps our children safe uh, so that they can be in the classroom, that strikes me as good policy. If we didn't like the policy, then we would take it up with our local school board and we'd have that dialogue. I mean, that's what school boards are for. So again, I I want to see kids in classrooms. I hate shutting things down, but we have to be responsible. So let's keep things open, but let's do it safely. And the fact that uh, Paxton and Abbott and Patrick and the rest, for pure political reasons, in my judgment, would come along and try to cancel those safety measures, for no reason other than to pander to some primary voter out there, uh, who's probably not a parent. Uh, could be I don't know who they are, but the fact that they would. Pander uh, and cancel these very sensible public safety measures adopted by local leaders is just not right. You've talked about running in twenty twenty
1: two against what you what you refer to as colossal policy failures at the at the state level, and one of the one of those policy issues that you've referred to was the the devastating failure of the state's power grid. Um, in February, when we had the the freeze, which left so many people without power and resulted in, in deaths and so much suffering in the state. Um, what do you look at as the, the key components of
2: of the, of a reform of our state's power grid? Well, the grid was designed, it's deregulated, and the deregulation uh, and the frame was designed by Enron, pushed through by Enron and lobbyists um, about twenty years ago. And it was designed to fail. Now, it wasn't obvious at the time to most people that it was designed to fail. It took a while before our state grew and put a strain and and the imperfections began to reveal themselves. Uh, I've been concerned about the grid long before February. I was more concerned about not having power on a hot summer day because our reserve margin was shrinking relative to what safe practice is because the grid is not designed to have reserve capacity. I thought our problems were going to hit us in a hot summer. They still may. Uh, I didn't realize that we weren't winterized. Now, the legislature knew we weren't winterized because they had been warned repeatedly by the Federal Federal Energy Regulatory Commission by ERCOT. Um, And uh, so they chose to ignore those warnings and not require the generators to be winterized, not require the providers of natural gas to be winterized. Um, this whole idea behind a uh, light regulatory touch, and I don't like unnecessary regulations. I mean, I'm in the business world. Unnecessary regulations are bad for business. you got to be very careful with regulations. But to have such a light touch, such that generators can decide it's cold outside, I'm just going to switch off instead of make the investment to winterize, is irresponsible. So we have to do two things fundamentally, it seems to me. First of all, we have to winterize the grid. Because if we have another February like we had in 2021, we will get the exact same result. And I'm waiting to see. And, you know, Greg Abbott said, well, it's fixed now. It's working better than it ever has. Well, it ain't working well. Witness what happened in February. And I'm waiting to see how much of it is talk and how much of are we actually winterizing this plan. And as my campaign unfolds and we get closer and closer to Election Day, I'm going to be demanding, show me. Show me where we put insulation. Show me where we put new sensors. I want to know specifically what what have we done to winterize. I don't want to hear a bunch of talk. Uh, This is dangerous stuff. And then point number two, for a hot summer, we don't have enough reserve capacity. So we don't have a capacity market. We're the only deregulated grid um, in the country where all we do is produce power, but we don't have standby reserves. And we're not going to have standby reserves because everybody's in it for the money and nobody can make money when it comes to standby reserves um, now I, I believe in the profit motive on the one hand but on the other hand if you don't have standby reserves and you could have rolling blackouts uh, I think that's that day is coming the reserve margins are getting smaller and smaller as our state grows and it's a ticking time bomb so we need to do those two things we need to have, we need to winterize urgently so that we can get through a cold winter and we need to build reserve, margin capacity uh, so that we can survive a hot summer and we do not have time to waste. Yeah, so how would you change the the Texas power market in a way that encourages or basically pays uh, power generators to create a reserve? How do you do that? Well, I think there there are different, there are several ways that you can do that and we have other grids, you know, for example, MISO, which is the Midwest grid that goes all the way up to Canada. They can handle cold, for example, there are ways to develop capacity markets where providers of electricity are required to buy credits, uh, for standby capacity. And you do the math. And of course you have to pay for it. I mean, it's nothing's free. We have to pay for it. Um, so there is a cost involved, but if it's done properly, it's a nominal cost. And so you can require, uh, folks in the retail side to, uh, own, uh, these uh, capacity credits. That's create, creates the economics so that you have standby capacity. So that's the one method that I'm aware of. I'm sure that there are other methods. Plenty of smart people can very quickly get to this. But you have to do it, we have to act. We can't just sit around and talk about it. And the the worst thing you could possibly do is make the utterly false assertion that everything now is just fine. I was absolutely flabbergasted when Greg Abbott, shortly after the freeze, went before Texans and said, Everything is just fine now. And that was the legislature's cue to stop working the problem. And the session ended and they didn't work the problem. They didn't solve the problem. And we now have a special session and a second special session. In neither one of those special sessions is anybody working the problem. They aren't doing anything. And that's absolutely the wrong thing to do.
1: You know, there's there's a lot of frustration in the state. I think, and I think growing frustration over the the state's unwillingness to uh, participate in Medicaid expansion under, under the Affordable Care Act. We've seen more and more states uh, uh, joining uh, the Medicaid expansion, and uh, even, even some some politically red states, um, San Antonio. Uh, uh, State Representative Lyle Larson, who's a Republican, has, has advocated for uh, this in recent months for Medicaid expansion in Texas, and this would provide the coverage to more than a million uninsured Texans, and it would most of the, the funding would come from the federal government. Could you talk a little bit about why this is an important issue to you, and, and how much you, you expect to, to emphasize this um, during your campaign in 2022?
2: Well, I'm glad you raised that. Uh, I've been campaigning on expansion of Medicaid since I got involved in politics when, when uh, that was first made available uh, through the Affordable Care Act. Uh, it was studied. It was looked at very carefully by a number of independent uh, economists. The Perryman Group, for example, uh, uh, Kaiser Foundation, the others, all concluded that it was a good financial deal for the state. So not only is it good, I mean, the business community is for it and has been for it from the beginning because a healthy workforce is a productive workforce. Um, it's also a good financial deal. Uh, that's why 38 states have done it. It's the right thing to do. We, we should, everyone should have access to health care. I mean, I really believe that. Um, I think that's fundamental. Uh, so it's the right thing to do. The only reason why we don't expand Medicaid, I think is for political reasons. It's belligerence. It, Rick Perry said at the very beginning that it would bankrupt us. It's a bad idea. He didn't know what he was talking about. We all know that he didn't know what he was talking about, but they have been publicly opposed to it on that basis, Republicans, that is. Uh, and pure belligerence keeps them from acting. Now, having said that, we did see in this last session that there were numbers, you mentioned Lyle Larson, there were a handful of folks on the Republican side of the aisle who said we really ought to look at it. 38 other states have done it. They're laughing at us. I mean, we, if you think about it, we in Texas are helping. Pay for healthcare in those 38 states. But none of those 38 states is helping us. So there is a the, the sentiment is changing on the Republican side of the aisle. I'm very happy to see that. But Dan Patrick, as the president of the Senate, uh, stopped that. There will be no discussion of Medicaid expansion. He did it for reasons related, in my judgment, strictly to politics. Uh, I, th- I think I use the term belligerence. I don't know what else to say. If we had the right lieutenant governor, then I think that the legislature would, in fact, expand Medicaid uh, to the applause of the business community, to the applause of all those people that would have health care, who ought to have health care. It'd be uh, very good for jobs in the state. People keep forgetting that expanding Medicare would create two or three hundred thousand jobs in the state. Um, Dramatically expand our health care delivery capacity, solve problems in rural Texas where hospitals are closing. There's just so many good things that would come to us. If we had the wisdom uh, to expand Medicaid and as lieutenant governor, I'll be sure and fight hard for that. You know, before we
1: wrap things up, I wanted to, to ask you a little bit about the, uh, about the next uh, year's election. And, and and if you are the democratic nominee for lieutenant governor, you obviously you're going to be part of a, of a, of a ticket on the on the general election ballot. And um, there's still uncertainty as to who the democratic uh, candidates might be for, for governor and uh, no matter how, how strong a campaign you run obviously you're going to be affected by um, the the kind of campaign that the Democratic nominee for governor will run it will it will have a an effect on on everyone on this on the statewide ticket so I, I got it, wanted to get your sense I mean there's obviously there's been talk about uh, Beth O'Rourke um, who was on the on the ticket as a Senate candidate when you ran in 2018 and both of you had you know, ran strong campaigns. Um, there's talk about him running for governor, but we, we, we still don't know. Um, how concerned are you about that?
2: Well, I would say, first, just to, to clarify for your listeners, um, I think most Texans know this, not all do. So it's important to point out that, that the two offices are both uh, independent of one another. They're both constitutional offices, very different jobs. The lieutenant governor, as president of the Senate, has uh, outsized influence over legislation. The governor has his or her job to do. Uh, and so they are. Um, it's not a ticket like you think of president and vice president. Um, right. They're two, right. two independent offices. Um, there are a lot of good folks that, that I would be delighted to see run for governor. Beto O'Rourke and I got to know each other in 2018. I think the world of them. Uh, I've gotten to know the Castro brothers. I think the world of them. There's a lot of good people out there. Um, it's still early. Uh, I think we're all uh, keen to see who might step up. And choose to run for governor. And, uh, I uh, expect that whoever that is, it'd be somebody whose values are consistent with mine. And I'll have a wonderful and satisfying time, uh, campaigning hard and helping them, just as I would hope that they would help me. Uh, I don't know who that person's going to be. I don't spend uh, much time worrying about it, uh, for all the reasons just mentioned. Uh, and you know, my job is to make sure that folks know if you choose not to vote for Dan Patrick, and there's an awful lot of Texans that just don't want to vote for Dan Patrick because they don't see him as solving these problems, such as the grid. And we didn't talk about uh, school funding, but that's still a problem. We didn't talk about property taxes, but that's still a problem. Um, Dan Patrick doesn't solve problems and I'm a problem solver. And so my job is to make sure that folks know what their choice is as to that race. And for the rest of the slate, I like to use the, the word slate rather than ticket because I think that's a more accurate. That's a better word. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So there's a lot of good Democrats. Um, I know a lot of them. I'll meet people that I don't know. Uh, I'm sure that we'll have a good slate. Share our values, and it'll be a wonderful experience.
1: Do you buy into the idea that you know that? And this is kind of conventional wisdom in politics, which is often wrong. But um, that uh, we've seen in recent history that. Uh, during the first midterm for a, for a new president that that president's party tends to have a rough time in the, in the midterms. And so there's some thought that um, that's, that's going to be beneficial to Republicans in 2022. Do you, do you buy into that at all?
2: Well, I think, you know, on election day, there's an awful lot of, that goes through a voter's mind uh, when they decide who to vote for. Um, I think uh, sometimes a midterm election is influenced by who's sitting in the White House. Sometime the, the midterm election is not influenced by who's sitting in the White House. Um, uh, so I, that's something that's uh, largely beyond my control. I, uh, I predict, this is the prediction that I make. Uh, you know, I supported Joe Biden. I mean, I, I uh, was one of the first to endorse him in the state. Um, I uh, was on his finance committee. I became his senior advisor. I believe in Joe. Um, I think he's working his way through these challenges. And I predict, and I've got a great deal of confidence in he and his team. And I predict when we're sitting here and it's time to vote in in, uh, November of 2022, I predict that he'll be a very popular president. Uh, And I think that's going to be very, uh, very helpful to me in what I'm doing. Well, Mike Collier, thank
1: you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. And uh, good luck on the campaign trail. And for everyone uh, listening in, uh, thanks. And we will uh, we hope everyone's doing well and everyone's healthy out there. Uh, Take care. And we'll be back next week. Thanks very much.